All right, you will need a Bible tonight. We're going to look up a number of different scriptures together as we think about the sufficiency of the Bible. There's notes up at the front. There's also notes in the back. Uh, If you need those, if you're joining us online, we've posted the notes on our Facebook page and on our church website. On Wednesday nights, uh, this semester, we're talking about the Bible. And on this side of spring break, we're focusing on the doctrine of Scripture. What is it that we believe about the Bible? We've talked about the inspiration of Scripture, which really is the foundation for everything else that we've said about the Bible. The fact that God has inspired the words of Scripture. We talked about inerrancy, perspicuity, which means the clarity of Scripture. We've talked about authority, last week necessity, tonight sufficiency, the sufficiency of Scripture. And then we've got three more leading up to spring break, the power of the Bible, the unity of the Bible, and the beauty of the Bible. On the other side of spring break, we're going to keep talking about the Bible, uh, but rather than thinking about the doctrine of Scripture, we're going to think about something called hermeneutics or interpretation. What are the rules for making sense of what the Bible actually says? So tonight we're thinking about the sufficiency of the Bible. In the 21st century, in the developed world, we have a ridiculous amount of opportunity for learning and education. It's really just mind-blowing how many, how much, the vastness of the opportunities that are available to learn, to educate, uh, to discover new things. Uh, There's so many opportunities that as a society, we end up arguing, because we have so much time on our hands, about which opportunities are the best opportunities. And we like to rank things. I don't know what it is about human beings that likes to rank things, but we like to rank things. So you can get on and you can look at U.S. News and World Report. If you want to be a lawyer, according to the uh, 2020 report, there are three top schools you might want to consider. Yale, Stanford, and Harvard. Best opportunities for an education if you want to be a lawyer. U.S. News & World Report says if you want to be a doctor, here's the top three opportunities. UNC Chapel Hill, University of California, San Francisco, University of Washington. Maybe you want to go into business. Here's your top three opportunities according to U.S. News & World Report. Stanford, University of Pennsylvania, and Northwestern. Maybe you want to go into engineering. I know UTPB has an engineering school. I think we were probably number four on the rankings. But the top three are MIT, Stanford, and University of California, Berkeley. Right? We go on and on and on. The point is there are so many opportunities for learning and education in the United States of America that we just end up arguing and debating and coming up with rankings about which one is better, which one is the most affordable, which one is the the best for getting you a job or advancing your career. We know where to go if we want to learn different things. Want to go to a business school, want to go to an engineering school, want to go to law school or medical school. And in the midst of all these opportunities for learning, for education, many people are completely confused about where they ought to turn if they want to learn about God. Where should I turn if I want to learn about God? Now, I've told you guys before, one of the most common questions that I'm asked as a pastor, I would have never predicted this 
as a seminary student going into ministry, one of the most common questions I'm asked as a pastor is, do you know of any good devotional books? I know 66 great ones. They come in one single volume. You should just jump in. And people say, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. But do you know of anything else? And I just, sometimes if you ask me that, I won't slap you. I won't grab you by the shirt collars. I won't shame you. I won't mention your name on a Wednesday night or anything like that. But I just, it's a reminder to me that sometimes we're just confused about where we ought to look if we want to learn the truth about God. And so that's really what we're talking about tonight when we think about the sufficiency of Scripture. Here's an opening quote from Wayne Grudem. We've referenced him a lot in this series. Grudem says this, The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God He intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history. God's Word, the Scriptures, contain all that God wants to be in it at each stage of redemptive history and... The sufficiency of Scripture means that it now contains all the words of God that we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. The Bible has all that we need. It is sufficient for helping us know about salvation, trust God, and obey God. So our approach tonight is very simple. We're going to try to break this idea apart into a few pieces. Then we're going to dig into the Bible. We're going to think about some of the challenges to the sufficiency of Scripture, and then we'll think about application. So, what do we mean when we talk about the sufficiency of the Bible? Number one, we mean the Bible is sufficient for knowing the truth about God. If you want to know the truth about God, the Bible is sufficient. Now, admittedly, the Bible doesn't tell you everything that you might be curious about when it comes to God. There are a lot of why questions or what questions that the Bible may not answer. We're not saying the Bible has every answer you may want. What we're saying is the Bible has every answer that you need to know the truth about God. If there's something about God that you need to know, the Bible has it. It's sufficient. Secondly, the Bible is sufficient for living a life that honors God. The Bible tells you everything you need to know about how to live your life in a way that honors the Lord. It may not tell you everything you'd like to know about life. I don't have a Bible verse that says, should you wear red or blue on Tuesdays? You're going to have to make that call when you wake up on Tuesday. Red or blue, no Bible verse for that. I don't have a Bible verse that says, if you want to be a medical student, should you pick UNC or California, San Francisco? I don't have a Bible verse for that. You're just going to have to make a decision. There's a million things in life that you're going to have to make a decision about. It's 10 degrees outside. Should I wear my flip-flops or my boots? Make a decision. I don't have a Bible verse on that. What we're saying here is that the Bible is sufficient for telling you how to live a life that honors God. If there's something that you need to do in life to honor the Lord, the Bible's going to talk about it. Okay. Thirdly, the Bible is sufficient for establishing a biblical church. 
And believe it or not, the Bible actually does have something to say about how a church ought to be established, how it ought to function, how it ought to operate. And it says what we need to know. Does it answer every question about church? No. Are we going to put down tile or carpet in the foyer? No Bible verse for that. Are we going to sing mostly hymns or mostly new songs? Are we going to sing this kind of song on Wednesday night or this kind of song on Sunday morning? I don't have a Bible verse about that. Are we going to sing eight songs before the sermon and the sermon's going to be this amount of time? We don't really have a Bible verse about that. But if there's something that we need to know, and there are things that we need to know about how to establish a church, how to run a church, how to function as a church family, the Bible contains everything that we need to know. Lastly, the Bible is sufficient for engaging in Christian worship. sufficient for engaging in worship. It tells us what we need to know about how to honor God in a way that would honor Him, that would please Him, that would be glorifying to Him. Now, uh, I want to give you a quote. It's a long quote. And I want to talk out of both sides of my mouth because on the one hand, I'm saying to you that the Bible is sufficient. Okay? I just want to be clear. We've, We've been clear along the way, but I just, in the abundance of caution, I want to be clear with you that in some sense, we also believe the Bible is insufficient. And I like what Carl Truman says here, so we'll just read through it and think through some of these things. There is a sense in which we might say that Protestants believe in the insufficiency of Scripture. We acknowledge that Scripture is insufficient for many of the details of everyday life, such as motorcycle maintenance. Talk to Ted Powell. Don't try to find it in Proverbs. Just talk to Ted. Cooking curries. I don't know which one of you is good at cooking curries, but somebody can probably do it. Don't look in the Bible. It's even insufficient for the day-to-day running and good health of the church. Like, we need elders and we need deacons. We need sound words. Like, there's things that come up in the life of the church where you can't always find a Bible verse for it. He says what it is sufficient for, however, is regulating the doctrinal content of the Christian faith and the life of the church at a principal level. That's Paul's point in 2 Timothy 3. We'll get to that in a minute. In other words, to speak of scriptural sufficiency is one way of speaking about the unique authority of Scripture in the life of the church and the believer as the authoritative, sufficient source for the principles of faith and practice. Okay, This is really not rocket science. If you wake up tomorrow and you have chest pains, don't call me call Dr. Farber. I don't have anything to say to you other than call Dr. Farber. Call the hospital. Call the ambulance. Call the ER. I don't have a Bible verse to say to you. I'll pray with you quickly, but I don't have any sort of magical Bible verse that's going to fix that. If you get a letter from the IRS in a couple of weeks and it says, you owe us money, do not call me. Call my wife. And she'll say, yep, you owe money. Send the check in and send me one too for telling you that. That's what you do. You don't call me if you have tax problems. If your family's trying to decide what kind of dog do we want to buy, I don't have any advice about that. I don't have anything to say to you about that. Should we get a big dog or a little dog? Should we get a dog that sheds or one that doesn't shed? Should we get one that people really trust or is it okay to get a pit bull? I don't care. Don't call me about that. Make your own decision. About a dog. In some sense, we believe the Bible is insufficient. It doesn't answer every single question about life. It doesn't 
answer every single question that we have to answer and deal with on a daily basis. But if you want to know the truth about God, look to the Bible. If you want to know what does it look like to live a life that is obedient and pleasing to the Lord, look to the Bible. If you want to know what are the essential things that we've got to be doing as a church, you look to the Bible. If you want to know how is it that we as God's people should approach Him in worship, look to the Bible. It is sufficient for all of these things. A few quotes uh, that are not on your notes, but I want to share these with you briefly. This is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a question and an answer. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. If you want to know what is it that I'm supposed to believe about God and what is it that God requires of me, the Bible is sufficient to answer those questions. The Bible will perfectly and completely answer those questions. A similar thought from the Second London Confession says the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Meaning, we are not taking your suggestions for Revelation Part 2. We don't need any more. We've got what we need. And the week after spring break, that's the first thing that we're going to talk about as we think about hermeneutics. We're going to talk about the canon of Scripture. Why do we have the books that we have? For now, what we're saying is we have the books that we need. We have everything that we need in these books. They're sufficient for teaching us about who God is, for teaching us about salvation. How do we live a life that pleases God? How do we function as a church? How do we approach the Lord in worship? The Bible is sufficient for these things. So let's look at the Bible itself. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. You remember we started with the Grudem quote that said, At every stage of redemptive history, God's people had a sufficient word from God, a sufficient revelation for what God was calling them to, for who God was calling them to be. This is seen in Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. This is Moses speaking to the new generation after they've spent all these years in the wilderness and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. This is Moses' last charge to those people. This is what he says in verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Now this is interesting because when these people are getting ready to go into the promised land, they didn't have all 66 books. Right? By the time Moses finishes this speech, they have 5 books. And what Moses is saying is, look you people, don't add to it. Doesn't mean that God's never going to add to the canon. It means God has given you what you need. You don't need to go borrowing from the Canaanites to know how to honor the Lord. You don't need to go listening to the Midianites to know how to worship the Lord. God has given you his word, and it is sufficient for the people that he's called you to be as you go into this new land. So he says to them, don't add to it. Look at Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. 
Deuteronomy 12, 32. Moses says, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. You have what you need to be the nation and the people that God's called you to be at this moment in redemptive history. So don't ignore anything in God's word and don't add to God's word. Now, jump to the book of Proverbs, the middle of your Bible. Proverbs chapter 30. We've sort of hit the fast forward button by the time you get to Proverbs. You're likely in the time of the monarchy under David and Solomon. Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. We talked about that a few weeks ago, the inerrancy of the Bible. Everything that it says is true. It doesn't say anything that's untrue or false. Every word of God proves true. He, God, is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And somehow you understand God is a shield. You take refuge in God. is connected to this idea that his words are true. Meaning if you want to take refuge in the Lord and you want God to be your shield and your defender, his word has to be an active part of your life. These ideas are connected in verse 5. Verse 6, do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. In other words... The book of Proverbs is saying at this moment in redemptive history, you have what you need to honor the Lord, to be a wise and God-fearing people. Don't take away from it and don't add to it. It's interesting. This same charge is echoed at the book of Revelation. Look at the, the book of Revelation, the very last chapter, the very last verses of the Bible. Revelation 22 is a fitting end to the canon of scripture it's a fitting into the book of revelation revelation 22 verse 18 i warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them god will add to him the plagues described in this book and if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy god will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book that's pretty serious stuff Right? At every stage in redemptive history, God's people had what they needed. This is the last book added to the canon of Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, speaking through John, says, Look, you have a revelation, a word from God. You have what you need. Don't ignore any of it. Don't take any of it away. Don't add to it. What you have is sufficient to be the kind of people that God's calling you to be. Flip back to the book of Psalms. Almost every week we've ended up in Psalm 19. Psalm 19. I want to read a few verses, verse 7 down to verse 11. The first part of Psalm 19 talks about general revelation. The middle part here talks about the Bible. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. You add all that up, just the repetition of everything the psalmist is saying about the scriptures. You come away and you say, okay, this word from God is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. 
It says it gives life, it gives wisdom, it gives joy, it gives knowledge, it lasts forever, and it's righteous. It's better than a pile of gold, it's sweeter than honey, it warns us about the dangers of disobeying God, and it promises us that God's going to be good and gracious to his people. You add all that together, and the takeaway really has to be, at least in part, this book is enough. It's sufficient for us to be the kind of people that God wants us to be. Surely God wants us to be uh, alive and wise and joyful and enlightened, and he wants us to live forever and be righteous. This book grants us all of those things. It's sufficient. Look at Psalm 119. We'll read just one verse here from Psalm 119. Psalm 119.1. What is it that we need to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord? Psalm 119.1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless. That's what we're shooting for, hopefully. Being blameless, following the Lord, trusting the Lord. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. And then, comma, explanation, those who walk in the law of the Lord. You want to know how to be blameless before the Lord, how to be obedient in your life before the Lord, how to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. It's very simple. Psalm 119.1, walk in the law of the Lord. Go to the New Testament, 2 Timothy. Second Timothy 3, we'll pick up in verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, as for you, Continue in what you've learned, and you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the holy writings, the scriptures. Paul says, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able. That's an important word. You should circle the word able. The sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What is it that a person needs in order to understand the truth about salvation through Jesus? They need the sacred writings. They need the scriptures. Do they need a special devotion book written by someone who says they are speaking for the Lord? They don't need that. Do they need a really dynamic preacher or speaker or Sunday school teacher? They don't need that. The sacred writings are able. They are capable. They are sufficient for making you wise to salvation. Keep reading. Verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's inspiration. It is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. That, verse 17, the teaching, the reproof, the correction, the training in righteousness that comes from the breathed out word of God, verse 17, is so that the man of God, the woman of God, the person of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. There is no good work that God calls his people to do that the Bible won't equip you to do. It's sufficient. It's able to make you wise for salvation, to bring you into a relationship with the Lord, and it's sufficient to teach you, to show you how to be a complete follower of Christ and to be obedient in every good work. Two more verses. Flip over to the right, just a few pages. Go past Hebrews, go to James. James 1, 18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits 
of his creatures. There's a similar idea if you turn just a couple of pages to the right. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says that you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Both of those verses say it is through the word of God, the scriptures, either read or taught or proclaimed or heard or listened to. It is through the word of God that Christians are born again. doesn't happen apart from the preaching of the word of God. We talked about that last week. Romans 10, the necessity of scripture. We've got to hear the good news of the gospel if we're going to have faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible is necessary. It's also sufficient. It's able to bring you to new life. It's powerful to cause you to be born again to a new life, to eternal life. So, what are the challenges to this doctrine, the sufficiency of Scripture? I'm going to mention a few. Number one, church history and tradition. Tradition. When we talk about tradition, we could talk about informal tradition in the Baptist sense where we say in some Baptist churches... Well, we've never done it that way before. We have a tradition, how we do things around here. And sometimes that can be a challenge to what the Bible is actually calling a church to do. What we're really talking about here is not informal tradition, but formal tradition. And really we're thinking of like the Roman Catholic Church, where the official stated doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church is, the Bible's the inspired word of God, but we also need the tradition and the teachings of the church. And the traditions and the teachings of the church are necessary. They need to be added alongside the Bible so that we can understand it and that we can function and know the truth about God and understand how church ought to work. What they're doing is they're denying the sufficiency of the Scriptures. And they're saying, yes, we need the Scriptures, but we also need something else. And what we're saying is, no, you don't really need the something else. The Bible is sufficient. Second challenge. Special words from God. This would be our charismatic and our Pentecostal friends. And a lot of them uh, like to make decisions or do important things in their life once they have heard or received some sort of special word from God. And sometimes they talk about, well, I want to hear a new, fresh word from God. If you've ever found yourself thinking that, I want to hear a new, fresh word from God, my advice is read a book of the Bible you haven't read in a long time. Try Nahum. I bet it's been a long time since you read Nahum. Turn to Nahum. You hadn't read it in a long time. It'll be new to you and fresh to you. It'll be something you haven't read or experienced in quite a while. You don't need to just sit around waiting for God to sort of audibly speak to you. You just need to open the Bible. This is one of my frustrations when people come with this question of, do you have a good devotion book? I'm not against devotion books. I've used them. I do use them. But if you're using it in place of the Bible, what you're saying is, well, the Bible's nice, but what I really need is someone else. Their take, their thoughts, their words. There's nothing wrong with learning from other people, but what you need is the Bible, and the Bible is sufficient for you knowing the truth about God and salvation. Next, feelings and impressions. Okay, this would be are non-charismatic evangelical friends where they may not be so brash and bold as to say God is speaking to me audibly, but what they're really relying on is sort of a gut feeling or I'm just waiting for the Lord to impress this on me. Listen, 
We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. There is no question that the Holy Spirit can guide people and give you a burden for something. No one's denying that. What we're saying is, if it doesn't happen, it's okay. Because you have the Bible. And the Bible is sufficient for everything that you need concerning life and godliness, faith in the Lord and obedience to His will. The Bible is sufficient. And there may be times in your life where God doesn't give you that gut feeling or those impressions. Because maybe He wants you to have faith and make a decision. Maybe He wants you to use wisdom and make a decision. So we don't want to be dependent on feelings or impressions. Uh, fourthly, human wisdom and philosophy. This would be the error of many of our mainline Protestant friends, liberal Christianity. These would be the folks. We've talked about uh, this issue some on Wednesday nights. They're quick to say they like the Bible. They're quick to refer to the Bible and quote the Bible. But they also would say that human learning, human wisdom, human science needs to supplement and at times correct the Bible. Because there's some stuff in the Bible they're just not quite okay with. And so they're going to look to something else to be a higher authority than the Scripture. And we're saying, no, the Bible is sufficient. Lastly, popular speakers or authors. We've talked about devotional books. Maybe you have your favorite preachers you like to watch on TV or your favorite podcast or your favorite authors that you like to read. I have favorite preachers that I like to listen to. I have favorite authors that I like to read. All of that's fine. But at the end of the day, I don't need those people like I need the scriptures. And the things that they may offer me in terms of learning and insight is not something that I'm never going to be able to find in the Bible itself. The Bible is sufficient for teaching us the truth about God, how to live in a way that pleases Him, how to function as a church, and how to worship. So how do we apply this doctrine to our lives? Two thoughts. Number one, be joyfully content with what God has revealed to us in the Bible. Originally, I just had the word content. Sometimes we are begrudgingly and grouchily content. Like, you ever had an MRE? Any of you ever eaten an MRE? Meal ready to eat? I've got a picture of one up there called Asian Beef Strips. Look, it's sufficient keeping you alive. It's sufficient for giving you a little bit of energy so you can go into the next battle and fight the bad guys. But if given a choice, you want to pour water into the MRE and have Asian beef strips, you want to get in the car with me and go to Lubbock and eat at P.F. Chang's, that's an easy decision. Save the MRE for the apocalypse and let's go eat at P.F. Chang's. When we're talking about the Bible, we're not just saying it's sufficient like an MRE, like it's the the bare minimum that you need, you're just going to scrape by and you're going to be miserable. You're going to wish you had more the whole time. We're actually saying the Bible is a feast and the Bible is a great treasure and is a great feast and a great treasure is something worth. Remember Psalm 19? It's worth more than a pile of gold. It's sweeter than honey. It's something that we ought to, here's the Bible word, delight in. Take your Bible and let's look at just a few more verses. Psalm 19. 119. We're going to read these quickly. Psalm 119, verse 14. 
psalmist says, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes and I will not forget your word. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight, they are my counselors. Verse 35, we read earlier, lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Verse 47, I find my delight in your commandments which I love. Verse 70, the heart is like unfeeling fat, speaking about the wicked, but I delight in your law. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Verse 143, trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. We should be, because the scriptures are sufficient, joyfully content. We should delight in the word of God. Secondly, we should resist the temptation to add anything to the Bible. That includes formal traditions and informal traditions. That includes our own interpretations and opinions. That includes human learning. It includes science. It certainly includes books to the Bible. Many religious movements, many cult groups add books to the Bible. They don't just tear the Bible up, but they say, we've got the Bible and we've got this. We're not going to do that. We don't need extra biblical revelation from God. We don't need promptings, gut feelings, God told me so. We don't need to listen to people who say they've been to heaven or they've been to hell or they've had some after-death experience. The Bible is sufficient. Always times in your life where you find yourself needing to learn things. And you've got to know where should I go to learn what I need to learn. A couple of weeks ago we had a part on a bathtub break. I did not consult my six-year-old son about how to fix the bathtub. Never crossed my mind. I did what all of you would have done. I got on YouTube. And I watched a video. And it was about 30 seconds long. And I'm like, oh, easy. I know how to fix that now. Fixed it, worked, right? If you're a college student, you're a high school graduate, you're saying, I want to go into this trade or I want to go into this field. I need this degree. I need this training. I need this education. You've got to know where to go to learn what it is you need to learn. If you're a parent, you're trying to figure out, how do I parent these hooligans that the Lord has entrusted me with? You don't go through this door and ask the college students for parenting advice. That's not the place you go learn it. You find some gray hair person walking around who's raised their kids and they're civil people, and you say, hey, can you tell me some, something smart or intelligent about, about parenting? If you need marriage advice, please don't go up to the youth group and find the middle school girls and say, girls, what should I do here? You find somebody who's been faithful in their marriage, and you get up beside them and you watch and you listen. And you learn. If you want to learn how to play sports, you don't call the geek squad. They're not going to help you. If your computer dies, you call the geek squad. You don't call Permian football coach. you got to know who to call. you got to know where to go to learn what you need to know. If you want to know the truth about God, if you want to know how to live a life that's pleasing to Him, if you want to know what life ought to look like, 
in a local church, and if you want to know what God-honoring worship looks like, what we're saying is the Bible is sufficient for all of that. There's other places you can learn. There's other people that can be helpful. But the Bible is really the source book. It's the place with the answers. doesn't have all the answers. doesn't answer every question that you may have in life. But when it comes to life and godliness and following the Lord and trusting the Lord and living together as a church family, the Bible is sufficient for teaching us what we need to know.